Well, I don't know if you are singing better with some depleted numbers. Maybe I'm hearing better, but it was good to hear some zeal in singing the praises of our God tonight. I want to ask you to turn with me this evening to the Gospel of Mark, Mark's Gospel, the second chapter, and we're continuing studies we've chosen to open this new year with in the Lord's Day evenings with some protracted attention given to the doctrine of the Lord's Day. And we've looked at it in the past. We've actually opened more than one new year with at least one reference to the Lord's Day near to the beginning of the year, just to remind ourselves. But I've wanted in this year to look at it, I guess, a little bit more fully. And though many of the things, even in single messages, we've hastened through, to tarry a little while, to over a series of weeks give our thoughts and attention to the doctrine, and I trust in closing the studies even some practical application. Um, I think in some ways the practical applications, the rules, are where we always want to go first, and that's just not the way to deal with it. I've read you a lengthy quotation, which I'll probably wind up reading to you again, on Sabbath casuistry. Casuistry is the making of rules and practical applications of principles. Um, But I've wanted to just take the little pieces of the doctrine and then some of the challenges to the doctrine one at a time uh, in these evening studies. And we come tonight to the New Testament scriptures. And I want to read a brief portion here in Mark 2, beginning in verse 23 and down to the end of the chapter. So Mark 2 and verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. I should just pause. Uh, I was... I don't know how old I was when I first learned and understood that when the authorized version says corn, it usually perhaps never means uh, what we mean when we say corn, corn on the cob. But grain, you can almost use the word grain, uh, wheat, barley, those are the grains that are in view more so than our corn. But uh, where was I when I interrupted? The disciples, as they went to pluck the ears of corn, And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungered? He and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests? And he gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Well, in reading, and again, trust the Lord to prosper the public reading of his word. I'll ask you to bow again with me briefly in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful tonight to gather in with your people to come to this evening hour in the close of our Lord's Day, to once again hold up one another in prayer and communion and fellowship, 
to be again corporately instructed out of your word and corporately to sing your praises and to lift our hearts in prayer to you. Even these aids to our worship and to our observance of your day. So prosper these moments. Lord, prosper our fellowship that we anticipate to follow and our financial report as well. We already praise you for the things you've done. But meet with us and give us gospel hearts in these moments now, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I want to just for a moment review where we've been. As I said, we're trying to just take the different pieces of the Lord's day with regard to its scriptural teaching. and Perhaps a little more with application to our modern context where we have become... Uh, a minority of at least American evangelical believers that observe the Lord's Day and believe there is such a thing as the Lord's Day and a Christian Sabbath that reflects God's law. What we've seen so far in our studies is quite simple. I think that the observations are plain. I think they're important. There are other portions that we didn't single out, particularly in the lives of the patriarchs that... uh, perhaps would have been worthy of mention. But the two Lord's Day evenings that have preceded this one, we've seen these two perspectives. First, that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. That God himself observed the seventh day of creation. He ceased. And that's important to underscore that. We read that God rested from his labors, but again, was the omnipotent, eternal God weary in any way? No. Perish the thought. It's a blasphemous thought. There was a cessation in his leaving off his labors. And really, when we come to the more practical aspects of the Lord's Day in a future study, keeping that in mind that there's a cessation of certain things that is at the heart of the observance of the day. But man in the garden, man in his innocency, as we'll underscore a little later tonight again, was commanded to observe the seventh day. He was commanded to commemorate that day that God had given the pattern for in his marking out and commemorating the day. So the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It predates, could we say, everything. Because it was part of the creation week itself. So that is before there were dates. It's a creation ordinance. We came to see last time, as we looked at Mount Sinai, that the Sabbath also is a moral law. It was distinguished with those other nine words, those other nine laws, from all the remaining laws and ceremonies that God gave the nation of Israel. We sought to underscore the phrase in Deuteronomy at the second rehearsing of the law, that those ten words that were given, those that were engraven with the finger of God in the tables of stone placed inside the ark, that remarkable phrase, and he added no more. And yet if we turn back to Exodus, as we read the remainder of the Pentateuch, there were multiplied other laws added, if you will, God gave to that nation at its formation. 
But to these laws, to those words that were set apart from everything else, set apart by way of recognizing that they had been there before. There was new stuff that was going to be given to the new nation. There were ceremonies that were going to be enlarged far beyond the simple ceremony that we see Adam and Eve and Abel observing right outside of Eden. There were going to be greater details, more full symbols that would be given to the nation. There were going to be civil aspects to Israel's laws. They would be governed by these things in distinction from other nations. But the ten words, that moral law, that was isolated. It was set apart. It was shown to have a different standing than those other things that would be given to the nation. So from those first observations that it's a creation ordinance, that it's a moral law, we really see the ground cut out from under most of the objections that are given to an observance of the Lord's Day today. Because many of those objections are based upon the thought that the Sabbath was a Jewish institution rather than a creation ordinance. That the Sabbath was a ceremonial law and not a moral law. And so we see the ground set for these things, the argument that the Sabbath has passed away has nothing to support it in these Old Testament scriptures. It has nothing to support it in its primary institution, nothing to support it in the subsequent legislation given to the nation of Israel. So as we come to the New Testament, do we find then support for these arguments? Well, what we've read this evening in Mark 2, and it's also given to us in parallel accounts in Matthew 12 and in Luke 6, these verses, these sections of the, the Gospels, and then also three particular references that occur in the epistles are where many of the objectors to the teaching of the perpetual obligation of the Lord's day find their strongest arguments, if you will. But if I could just underscore before we come into these particular verses that the presuppositions that give those arguments seeming weight don't have any support in what we've seen so far. They're bringing to these other passages some presuppositions that don't stand. But when we come to the account we've read in Mark and the other accounts in the Gospels, it is suggested here that as the Lord's disciples were rebuked by the Pharisees, that when the Lord defends His disciples and when He rebukes the Pharisees and charges them with not understanding, that He does so on the basis of the fact that He is changing the law. And we see it phrased here that He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And the argument is that as the Lord of the Sabbath, he has the right and the prerogative to change the laws of the Sabbath. But is that what is happening in these accounts? Is Christ defending the disciples by changing the law? Now again, we're going to just in a summary fashion address these questions. 
I just encourage you, if you have deeper questions on any of these things, look to about any of the older literature, the older commentary, the older discussion on these topics. But as our Lord here and his disciples are journeying, we set the context and just try and see what is happening. As he's traveling on the Sabbath day from leaving the synagogue, going yet to another place to minister, the disciples are hungry. And so as they walk through the fields of grain, you actually have implication, or not implication, you have instruction in the Old Testament scriptures with regard even to the people, the the landowners, not harvesting the edges of the fields. The purpose that the poor and the travelers might do even as the disciples have done. They take little kernels of grain in their hands, they rub them together, they blow the chaff out, and they, they have just a slight snack as they walk along to subdue their hunger. Well, the Pharisees see this, and they say, Aha! Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. They're harvesting. It doesn't use the word harvest there, but the implications are plain. They're laboring. And I just have to smile and think of that when we talk about deeds of necessity and mercy and our substandards. I'm thinking... How much less labor was involved in what the disciples were doing and, well, what meal you put on for your family today? Uh, These were not really sweaty laborers out there harvesting the fields, getting a few kernels and chewing upon them as they, they walk along. But the Pharisees find occasion. Our Lord speaks to them of David and his travels, It's interesting, and this is one of the pieces of this that could be fleshed out a little further. We do have record here of a a ceremony that was set aside for the necessity uh, and the real necessity of David's men. But that is not, as many do, an implication or instruction that what our Lord speaks of here is ceremony. But as our Lord speaks in his defense of the disciples... He utters an interesting phrase. He speaks of himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Now again, the the normal argument by the opponents of the Lord's day is that while he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he can change the rules when and wherever he wants to. But even that, to put that to examination, God is indeed God, And the law is what it is because God has given the law. But is God himself free to change the law, the moral law? To change definitions of right and wrong? If God were free to do that, then why would we need a Savior? Could God not say since man has not lived up to this law, I'll take him as he is. I'll change the laws in order to fulfill my desire to save man. Now we find the clear teaching of Scripture is that that law can't be altered. That its penalty must be paid. That its reward must be earned. And thus the person and work of Christ. Thus the active and passive obedience of Christ. It is not in that fashion as one free to change the law 
that the Lord speaks of himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. When Christ speaks of himself as Lord of the Sabbath, he's not saying, I have a right to change it at my will. He's implying to these Pharisees, as he has taught of himself all along, he is the Lord. He is the lawgiver. If these disciples were in breach of his command, he would certainly know it. Because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Our Lord indicates to the Pharisees that his disciples are not worthy of rebuke. They have not broken his law. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he knows. The Pharisees are seeking to find the disciples guilty by some of the tradition of the fathers. And yet when we go through the Gospels, we see ample evidence of our Lord demonstrating that in many cases, the Pharisees and their traditions had made God's own law void by their tradition. A classic example of that is the obligation to honor father and mother. The extension of that for Israel to care for the older parent. And the Pharisees had by their traditions and manipulations of the law said, well, we can get around this. We can get our accountants out there. We can find a loophole. And if we can say that these funds are designated for the Lord's work, then we're exempt from using them to support our needy parents. And our Lord dealt with them quite directly on their making void the law of God by their tradition. It is such a case here where the Pharisees are inventing a transgression where none exists. Our Lord actually in defending His disciples, if you take the reasoning of the ones that use this as an argument against the perpetuity of the Sabbath. I was very tempted to bring along R.L. Dabney's discussions tonight and read a little paragraph on his treatment of this passage. If you've never read R.L. Dabney, I would recommend him to you. He was a theologian in the Southern Presbyterian Church. You'll need a dictionary to read Dabney, at least I do. Um, But occasionally he'll use a word, and I'm sure it has connotation and meaning that we don't use today, but he frequently in his debates with his opponents uses the word blunder. There's actually a title of one of his discussions called prelacy, which is one of the forms of church government. It's a hierarchical form of government. Anglicans and Catholics, Episcopalians, use prelacy as their form of government. And the title is just prelacy, colon, a blunder. Uh, To me, blunder, it's just always humorous. I don't know why, but to me, there's just going to be a smile after the word blunder. But I'm sure he's not being as sarcastic as it may seem. But he speaks of the blunder of this argument from this portion of Scripture. He says, if you take that form of reasoning, then what we have here in this contorted logic of the Pharisees is that in order to defend the disciples, Christ has to change the law, as it were, after the fact, to prove them innocent. 
And this is obviously not the case. Christ isn't saying, well, yeah, they really transgressed. They shouldn't have done that. But I'm going to change the law right now so that they're not guilty and I can still rebuke you for your treatment of my disciples. That's not what's happening here at all. Dabney's correct. It's a blunder to reason in that way. What our Lord is doing is pointing out and freeing the Sabbath from the pharisaical impositions that they with the traditions of the fathers like they had done with the honoring of their parents had really distorted God's law beyond recognition. So these portions in the Gospels and the parallels do not support a lessening, a change with regard to Sabbath obligations. Now there would be changes Let me just interject here a point for a future study. When we argue for the Lord's day in our day, we're not arguing for a Jewish Sabbath. There are portions of Sabbath observance as we've seen in our last two studies. It's a creation ordinance. It's a moral law. There were things that Israel was given beyond the creation ordinance and beyond the moral application of the Sabbath law. There were civil penalties for Sabbath breaking. There were ceremonial aspects of Sabbath observance that don't apply. They're not part of the moral obligation. And those things indeed were changed. They were left off from the day of Pentecost. But now we'll see in a moment, and actually if you want to turn with me now to the book of Romans chapter 14, There's a second class of scriptures that are brought forward to argue against the Lord's Day for today. Three of these in particular, one in Romans 14, if you'll turn there, another in Galatians 4, and another, perhaps even more strikingly worded in Colossians chapter 2. But reading in Romans 14, verses 5 and 6, we read, One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not. And giveth God thanks. Now over to Colossians Chapter 2, Colossians 2, we'll read from verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, a shadow of things to come. Let no man judge you and meet or drink in respect of an holy day. One man regards a day, Romans says, another man doesn't. To the Lord he does, to the Lord he does not regard it. The argument from these portions, we'll not read Galatians just for sake of time, but the argument from these portions of Scripture is that the Sabbath is part of the ceremonial law. It's part of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. 
with the New Testament age, with the New Testament dispensation of the church. Those types and shadows are done away, and therefore the Sabbath is done away. The argument proceeds even further. I was, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for next for this sentence. Uh, Impressed, maybe. I was shocked. That'll be the word I'm going to use. I was interested, maybe is better, to find some of the arguments that even predated or maybe predated the rise of the dispensationalism in the church that were arguing based on the higher privilege of New Testament believers, the, the privileges, the greater light of this age, that our observance would not be so restricted as Old Testament believers. That one day in seven, if you will, wasn't sufficient or isn't sufficient for us. That we treat every day as a Sabbath. That we honor each day before the Lord. And that's a curious argument indeed. To say that, well, in our honoring every day, and not singling out any particular day of worship, that we are attaining something higher than Old Testament worship. Dabney was particularly eloquent and powerful here when he had us think back of Adam. Adam, prior to the fall, called upon an Eden to labor six days. What was Adam's attitude toward God? What was Adam's attitude toward worship and a knowledge that he was God's creature and that God was his creator, that God was worthy to be served and that even his menial service and labors in the garden were to the glory of God. Of course, the argument goes that all of our labors in the New Testament age are to the glory of God and we don't have to just find one day to glorify God as Israel did. And he said how this argument can even hold up to that type of scrutiny. The point that the apostles are making, Paul in each case, in Romans, in Galatians, and in Colossians, it's not an argument here about the weekly Sabbath. It's not an argument perhaps even more carefully worded about the New Testament observance of the Lord's day. Dabney actually went into great detail showing that none of the New Testament writers use the word Sabbath with regard to the Christian Lord's Day. It's proper for us, our Westminster standards speak of a Christian Sabbath, and it is known as the Lord's Day. But he said you'll search in vain for any New Testament writer. He went further and said you'll search in vain through the earliest Christian writers to find any reference using the word Sabbath with regard to the Lord's day. That these references to the Sabbaths in Romans, in Galatians, in Colossians were the Jewish feast days. The Jewish Sabbaths that were many that existed in addition to the weekly Sabbath, the creation Sabbath, the fourth commandment placed inside the ark. And he said, even our opponents will agree as they go through the Scriptures 
that in the early days of the New Testament church, in the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles, there were many, notably among the converted Jews, that continued to observe Jewish festivals, Jewish feast days, Jewish ritual, Jewish ceremonies. This was not a problem. Paul himself, you could say the preeminent apostle of the Gentiles, the one preeminently in Galatians and throughout Scripture and at the Jerusalem Council arguing against the imposition of Jewish ceremonies, circumcision notably, but other Jewish ceremonies as well, arguing against imposing those things on the Gentile believers. Because Christ, the substance of all those prefigurations, Christ, the substance of those ceremonies, has come. And the point here is that for those that chose to observe those days, if they, as a believing Jew, understood Christ, the fulfillment of all of that, wanted in addition to their observance of the Lord's day that we consistently find in the New Testament, to observe even the Jewish Sabbath, to go into the synagogues and be under the reading of the Scriptures, to find Christ in the reading of the Old Testament, that they were welcome to do so. If they wanted to observe the Passover, if they wanted as Paul to take a Leverite vow and fulfill a Jewish ceremony as we see him doing late in Acts, No problem. The problem is in saying that to a Gentile, or even to a Jew, in order to be saved, you have to follow these Jewish ceremonies. And his point here is with the meat offered to idols. Some have drawn connections even with Daniel and the protest of him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the portion of the king's meat that it's some of the Jewish ceremonial law that was their problem there. It is this underneath, some of the meat offered to idols in that discussion in the New Testament Scriptures. There's liberty with regard to Jewish ceremony. And it is these liberties that are clearly underneath the discussion in Romans 14, in Galatians 4, in Colossians 2. And I think if you read older literature and even good Reformed literature on these passages today, you'll find the uniform understanding here. It wasn't the New Testament church's observance of one day in seven. It wasn't the recognition of now the first day of the week, the day of resurrection as we'll come to see. It wasn't the rightness or wrongness of observing that day, take it or leave it, that Romans and Colossians are talking about. It's Jewish feasts. And here, I say the reality of this with regard to circumcision, the opponents of the Lord's day clearly see. Acts 15. You see Paul enacting this in his own experience. If you happen to be in Greenville and... April and take a quiz, no, maybe even a test question I'll be giving the students. 
about whether Paul was consistent or inconsistent when he circumcised Timothy after the Jerusalem council. He circumcised Timothy. Wait a minute. We don't need to do that in the New Testament. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Here's Titus. He did not compel to be circumcised. Work that one out. There's some context. There's some reasons. Well, it is this refusal to force ceremony on the Gentiles, and yet the allowing of those that wish to continue with that ceremony, knowing Christ is the fulfillment of them, where there's liberty. But it wasn't an abdication of the teaching of the Lord's day. It wasn't giving leave to any that wished to leave off the assembling of themselves together that Paul is dealing with in Romans and Colossians. So here, these New Testament scriptures that are used to object to the perpetual moral obligation of the Lord's day, these arguments really fail. The context all comes and points to the same things we see with regard to circumcision. I might say, I think in closing, that there's an application for us in this ourselves with regard to certain days. We haven't had much, at least to my knowledge, of an issue here, but I know there's some places where Christians come to be unhappy with Christian holidays. Christmas, Easter, and if you go by the ecclesiastical calendar multiplied other days beyond that and there's an argument that they are pagan and some pretty strong stuff said about Christmas at times but I think some of the arguments that have been made there begin to fall historically when you work through things but let me just put it this way I don't know at least I've never known of my Christian experience Christians that were really trying to resurrect the feast of Saturn at Christmas time. And I think of it even in the early days of the church. If the Roman Christians, it was already built into the annual calendar, you got that day off. Well, you know, we used to go out and party with our friends and have this pagan festival, but well, let's use the day in a different way. Even if you know the connection. It doesn't mean that it's a sinful observance. And here's where the apostle, and I thought some of the writers I read had interesting thoughts on the charity and the liberty in Romans and Colossians that was in view. If someone disregards a Christian holiday, they regard it to the Lord, and they with gospel humility interact with their brethren, don't falsely accuse their brethren of being guilty of idolatries they're not guilty of. Then let them to the Lord disregard such a day. If others have rejoiced in such days and are happy to meditate on the resurrection, which, well, really we do every Sunday, but happy to celebrate an Easter, happy to commemorate a Christmas, then to the Lord, let them regard it. It is in this way, with the Jewish background, that such a liberty on those festive Sabbaths is in view. 
But not the Lord's day. Not that creation ordinance. Not that moral law. Those were not and are not negotiable truths. This is God's law. We'll close here with those thoughts. Following on, as I said, just taking each of these pieces. We've covered more quickly in past. Just trying to digest little pieces of it in these opening Lord's Day evenings. But we're going to bow together and close this part of our evening. We'll give you just a few moments if you want to refresh yourselves and come back in. And then we'll sing another hymn. I'll ask a brother to come. I thought maybe we'd sing Psalm 100 and the doxology to start our financial report. And then after that, all those nice things you're beginning to smell. Uh, cooking in the kitchen will partake of those too. But let's close together in prayer. And like I said, we'll take a moment or two break here. And then when you hear the piano regather and we'll sing and start our financial report. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come tonight and ask that you would be pleased to help us. Lord, sometimes perhaps even more in our understanding and our attitudes than just sheer knowledge of the things before us. But we live in a world that is cast off your law. We live in a church that is largely impotent and has lost testimony in so many things. Lord, give us graciously to seek to understand your law and your word. The power of the gospel indeed. But Lord, give us graciously to walk in that newness of life and happily to give ourselves to the Lord's day that we might be freed, we might be able to cease from things that hinder us on other days from an unhindered reflection, an unhindered anticipation of the eternal day. Bless us then, Lord, we ask. Even the things that follow tonight, we ask your blessing on those. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.